FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. We're coming to the end of another week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm really happy to have all of you with us. A lot to talk about on today's show with a really terrific panel, so let's get right to it. Patricia Murphy, political reporter and columnist. She writes the Political Insider column that you read in the AJC on Wednesdays and Sundays, and she oversees the Jolt, which is a terrific way to catch up on all of the interesting and important news that's happening in politics in one big bite. Patricia, thanks for being here. (laughs) Yes, good morning. We like to serve it Serve it with your breakfast hot and fresh for the jolt. Boy, and you do like to serve it with breakfast. One of the things that's <laughs> happened in your tenure there is it's getting earlier and earlier that we get the jolt, for which we're grateful here on Political Rewind because you give us good stuff to talk about. Oh, thank you. I feel like it's news you can use, and you could use it even earlier <laughs> if possible. <laughs> we're also joined today by your colleague, the managing editor of uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Leroy Chapman. Leroy, I said right before the show, it's getting to be a habit. We're really happy that you have uh, joined our uh, our group of uh, panelists for the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And uh, I do not wake up as early as Patricia, who uh, is up at 4 a.m. <laughs> doing, doing the jolt. Yeah, 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 that's early. Um, and Professor Andre Gillespie is back with us. Um, She, of course, is a professor of political science and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. How are you doing, Andra? I'm doing fine. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for being here. And professor of political science at the University of West Georgia, Karen Owen, is back with us as well today. Karen, um, we should tell people that you invited Jim Galloway and uh, and me to come out to uh, University of West Georgia yesterday and to get a chance to talk to uh, students and also uh, because it was at the Thomas B. Murphy, what is it, reading room, um, yes. and we were going to talk a bit about the former speaker, uh, we got a chance to see some of the Murphy family there, sons, grandson, uh, daughters, wives of 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 uh, Murphy's children. It was really a wonderful experience, and I'm really glad you invited us out there. Yes, it was an excellent opportunity. Um, as part of my role, I direct the Thomas Murphy Center for Public Service, and this is our distinguished lecture series. So we're having a lot of political experts come over and share, and we have been fortunate that the Murphy family is very supportive, and they are attending these lectures and 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 helping us to spread the word about things happening in the state of Georgia. One of the things that's remarkable out there, if you were an old timer at the state capitol, as certainly Galloway and I are were, um, they have recreated Thomas Murphy's office. You know, Murphy was speaker for almost three decades and is a legend in Georgia politics. And his office was a really interesting place filled with great artifacts and trinkets and the things that he'd collected over the years. And to walk into that recreation where all of the things that he actually had on the walls and sitting on desks and uh, bureaus and that sort of thing, to see that is really remarkable. And I guess people who want to see it can call out to the uh, special um, uh, edition. What is it? Who can they contact? Special collections. Yes, this office is within the university's library, and yes, we can certainly allow people to come tour. We'll just work with the special collections team, and also the University of West Georgia is very fortunate that we have political papers, that we have the Murphy political papers. We also have papers from Newt Gingrich and Bob Barr, so it's a great resource and tool for those who are really interested in what our political leaders have said and done. Patricia, the only thing missing from that office when you walk in is the smell of cigar tobacco. Uh, <laughs> Murphy never smoked them. He chewed them, but it still sent a fragrance <laughs> up into the air. Let's get right down to uh, <laughs> the work of today. Uh, Patricia, let's start with this kind of ongoing effort by President, Trump, former President Trump 
to seemingly try to make it harder for Republicans to win elections in 2022. Um, he issued a statement this week, in, and I'll read it uh, directly. He said, if we don't solve the presidential election fraud of 2020, which we have thoroughly and conclusively documented, Republicans will not be voting in 22 or 24. It is the single most important thing for Republicans to do. Um, what's interesting about that is none of the none of the Republican candidates, to the best of my knowledge, on the ballot in Georgia have spoken out about this, while Republicans elsewhere are. Patricia? Uh, yes, there is a Washington Post piece about this also, and there's a quote from a Republican strategist who said that Republicans are having cold sweats over Donald Trump's posture toward the last election. Um, and there are a couple of dynamics going on. First of all, um, Donald Trump uh, it did this right before the Georgia runoffs. We know what happens when he says Georgia voters or voters won't go to the polls if somebody doesn't do something about the last election. Now, the reality is that Republicans have done a lot about the last election, including a number of Republican legislatures passing bills that they really didn't need to pass um, to uh, restrict access to the polls the next time around. But that was really to satisfy Donald Trump and Trump supporters that the next election would be safer. And I'll put that in quotes. Um, so it's clear that there's nothing Republicans can do to get Donald Trump off of this. They can't pass the bill. There's no bill they can pass. There's no suit that they can bring. And they've brought many all the way even up to the Supreme Court. Um, there is nothing, no investigation, no special session. There's zero that Republicans can do to satisfy Donald Trump unless the last election is overturned. And that's not going to happen. So unless he changes his tune, they're going to have a replay of the Georgia runoffs all across the country. Um, Leroy, here's a quote from one graph of the Washington Post piece that Patricia just referenced. The former president's threat drew winces among GOP operatives and U.S. senators gathered for a donor retreat for the National Republican Senatorial Committee in Palm Beach, Florida this week. Many still blame Trump for the loss of two U.S. Senate seats in Georgia. Patricia, of course, just said that in runoff elections, saying his false claims of fraudulent ballots kept people uh, from going to the polls. Um, a spokesman for Trump uh, countered that in this piece by essentially saying, and I'm, I'm not quoting him verbatim, essentially saying there's nobody who brings out voters the way Donald Trump does. Well, maybe not so much, Leroy. This is the deal that Republicans made when they had a moment in history to break from Donald Trump to basically take their party back to what it had been pre-Trump. And, and what that means is, is that I think there was a mutual healthy respect for norms. <laughs> so so you know, nothing about ideology, just a respect for norms. Uh, so there was a moment and um, that didn't happen. So this is what Republicans get. Uh, they get uh, Trump and all of his volatility. Uh, they get Trump who is still very insular and who uh, is worried first about Donald Trump. And what that means is he's surrounded by a lot of folks who are yes people uh, when he is intemperate and when he uh, wants to, to speak and command a stage, he'll do it continually. And he'll do it without regard to anything other than what he thinks in whatever moment uh, should be said, should be done, uh, and uh, how others should perceive him. So this is a deal that Republicans uh, made a long time ago uh, because of what you said. Trump can bring voters out, but also Trump's volatile. And we saw that here. So congratulations. Um, Andra and then Karen jump in on this. But Andra, I also read this this uh, statement from Trump as a threat in some ways. He's basically uh, what he's really what he's also saying to Republicans, you better do more investigating of fraud, because if you don't, I'm going to make sure Republican vote is the Republican vote is suppressed in the next two elections. You know, I, I think there's it's really hard to figure out exactly what. Uh, former President Trump's logic is in this. And so I think sometimes we do have to just assume a certain level of irrationality to the things that he's saying and just say that um, out loud. 
the thing that I worry about is that if Trump wants to claim that his people didn't participate in the election, therefore it is illegitimate, that might be a sort of end run again around trying to use this to kind of discredit or disqualify another election in an attempt to overturn it. Um, sort of a, a somewhat ignorant way of doing it because people don't participate in elections all the time and elections get certified. Um, what one hopes is that uh, is that for those who choose not to be the lemmings in this situation to not follow uh, Donald Trump off of an electoral cliff, um, is that that helps to refine and redefine who the Republican base is so that Republican legislators don't necessarily feel as beholden to Donald Trump because his ideas are not sound. Um, like, you know, just empirically, they're not sound. Telling people to not show up in elections is a guaranteed way to lose elections. And maybe some people will finally be willing to say that the emperor has no clothes. I haven't seen much evidence of that this week, though. So I think that, you know, Donald Trump still has this, this kind of death grip on the Republican Party. But it's going to take courageous people, you know, like Jeff Duncan, for instance, standing up and saying, this is lunacy. We need to stop listening to this. We shouldn't let this man hold the party hostage. Uh, Karen, Jeff Duncan uh, is uh, doing that. Jeff Duncan uh, tweeted out that he, he said uh, Trump is basically a sugar high for Republicans and they're going to get over it. Uh, in some ways that right now, the evidence suggests that's wishful thinking on Duncan's part. Well, and I think the point is that Jeff Duncan's able to kind of make a stand because he's not running for reelection. He's not going to be beholden to those voters, and he can actually speak out because he doesn't need to have a Trump endorsement or talk to those particular voters and try to re-engage. You know, every time I, I see these things, I think about where are we at as the political parties, and it seems the Republican Party is becoming much more fragmented and in what is really its message and purpose and center. And are there people like Duncan and others maybe like Christine Todd Whitman, those who are not in elective office, who are trying to bring back that centrist piece of American politics. And is that going to be a push to have a new party? And then Trump would just be kind of his own party with adherence. And then there would be some reclaim of these people who are not associated with him or do not find him um, appealing anymore in messaging and want to find back to a, an American politics that makes sense where we're not talking about stolen elections, where we're trying to build trust and allow for a peaceful transfer of power. Patricia, what do you think about that? I, 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 is there any kind of significant movement away from Trump among you know, Republicans like a Jeff Duncan? Uh, Karen can cite a few, but they're few and far between. I think um, if if there if there is a significant number of Republicans out there, they're very quiet. They are very quiet. They're thinking amongst themselves only or whispering it to reporters and saying, don't tell anybody I said that. So unless you have a significant group of Republicans who are not only um, feeling like they don't want to follow Donald Trump, but they're willing to step up and say that and risk their own reelection and give voters an alternative, it really doesn't matter, you know, and yeah. and uh, in going to Republican meetings, um, I don't see a hunger for something besides Donald Trump right now among Republicans, among that base. Um, they are um, thrilled with Donald Trump. They're animated by him. They are going to meetings. They're trying to take over the apparatus of existing Republican county parties so that they can lead it toward Donald Trump and not away from Donald Trump. So I definitely hear from Republicans who are not happy with Donald Trump um, but it, it's not a majority of the Republican voters that I talk to. And um, so that gives Democrats an opening. If they can provide a moderate middle um, that feels safe to a Republican with nowhere else to go, that's where the opportunity is for Democrats. Um, Andra, uh, Tia Mitchell filed a really interesting piece uh, this week. Uh, in, she looked at the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee's report on, uh, uh, you know, the, they investigated the election, whether there's fraud or the like. And she points out that within the pages of that 300 plus page report, Georgia is mentioned 317 times. That's more than the 270 mentions of states like Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin combined. Uh, Fulton County is mentioned 40 times. Trump's obsession with Georgia is 
astonishing and sort of mystifying in some ways. Well, I mean, I think of, of all of the swing states in, in 2020, Georgia was the most surprising. I think most of us assumed that Georgia would narrowly stay in the in the Republican camp. So that's part of the reason why Trump got incensed. I think it's important to point out that this week, the last lawsuit about the 2020 election got thrown out um, in terms of Trump's claims of, of fraud. So it really is over from a legal standpoint. It's just that Trump doesn't want you know, to accept the results of the election. And I think the other reason why we're mentioned so frequently is, you know, we've heard the tape where where, where President Trump is, is is trying to badger Brad Raffensperger into changing the results of the election. And so if you're going to be that, uh, you know, that sort of blatant um, in terms of your attempt to try to stick your thumbs on, on, on sort of the hands of, of an electoral outcome, it's going to get a lot of discussion. Um. Yeah, so we mentioned in the conversation so far a couple times the, that these uh, lawsuits claiming fraud are really coming to an end. And as we've said, the most recent one this week, Leroy, uh, Superior Court Judge Brian Amaro had been uh, 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 overseeing a case in which a group of pro-Trump uh, uh, folks were trying to get the judge to give them a, a recount, an examination, rather, of all the absentee ballots cast in Fulton County. They had affidavits from people who were involved in the Fulton County elections who said they saw pristine ballots with perfectly filled out ovals. It was clear there was counterfeit balloting that was included in the vote. Um, but uh, it, it quickly became clear after the Secretary of State's investigators uh, looked at these uh, allegations, that it simply wasn't true. And in fact, one of the people who filed an affidavit uh, actually pointed to a specific group of votes in a particular box, uh, and when it was examined, it turned out there were no counterfeit ballots there. And so, so then she said, well, no, I think it's this box instead, and she gave a location that didn't even exist. So Leroy... It, we're about at the end of a string here in Georgia on fraudulent uh, loss, on election lawsuits about fraud. Yeah, and there's a distinction. So the legal process is playing itself out, but that's not going to stop the information bubble uh, among those folks who are who believe a conspiracy theory. And for them, uh, no amount of evidence is going to convince them that something was not amiss. Uh, for them, they've bought the narrative, and the narrative is this. Uh, Donald Trump won. There's no way he could lose Georgia, of all states. Uh, you have a Democratic county, the largest county in Georgia, run by Democrats. Uh, that county has a history of uh, sometimes uh, mismanagement in terms of elections, although nothing to the scale of what is being alleged here, not even remotely. But uh, online... <laughs> The, the story persists. So the legal process can play itself out. Uh, we as journalists can cite uh, the number of times there have been judges who've looked at this and found no fraud. Uh, we can look at all the recounts. We can look at all of the auditing. So between the auditing, the recounts, the investigations, and the legal process where judges looked at it, and none of them would, would bear out that there had been the kind of fraud that they're alleging here it really doesn't matter because ultimately uh, they bought a, a narrative that Donald Trump is not let go of. And so Trump and Trump acolytes will continue to say, no matter what happened, the election was stolen. And they've not moved off of that. Okay, um, let's move on from Donald Trump. Uh, I'd like to talk just for a few minutes about the this um, Herschel Walker uh, uh issue that came up this week. He was heading to Texas, Patricia, to uh, have, be part of a fundraiser. <clears throat> Excuse me, a woman at her home there in Texas. Her name is Bettina Sofia Vivano Langlace, and uh, she's a conservative in Texas. And uh, she was found to have, is it on her Twitter uh, handle, that she had a graphic of uh, hyper, hypodermic needles in the shape of of a swastika. And um, when it was first reported, uh, was it the AJC that, that first reported this story, Patricia? Um, yes, it was me. It was you specifically. Then yes. take it away, Patricia. How did Herschel <laughs> Walker respond? 
And why are there people who think that he hasn't done enough? Well, this was uh, something that I discovered during my early morning jolt draft um, that morning (laughs) on Wednesday morning. Um, I'd not heard of this woman before, so I looked her up just to get a little more information. We were alerted to this fundraiser, and at the time I'm like, wow, a fundraiser in Texas. And to me, that was the news. Um, But then a very, the tiniest bit of research on her um, pulled up her Twitter profile um, with this, uh, with needles in the shape of a swastika, which to me was very alarming. Um, Not only because it was a swastika, but because this was a a woman uh, preparing to welcome a Georgia candidate um, for a fundraiser to raise money that would be coming back to Georgia for this Senate race. And so I reached out to Walker's campaign um, and uh, the response was, um, this is very clearly a, not a swastika. This is a statement against vaccine mandates. Um, There is a big controversy right now about vaccine mandates in Texas. Um, However, it is also a swastika. And so um, the the initial response from the Walker campaign that it was um, merely a, a protest against vaccine mandates on behalf of this woman um, was very alarming to uh, people who heard that. And so uh, the response did not go over well. I think there was a lot of um, social commentary. There were a lot of statements um, that this just simply wasn't enough, especially from Jewish groups in Georgia, that this just simply was not the appropriate response. Um, Within a few hours, uh, the Walker campaign um, put out a different statement and said, of course, this is a symbol of hate and it's totally inappropriate and um, Herschel Walker will not be having that fundraiser anymore. Um, it, but uh, to me, it sort of revealed a number of things. First of all, is that although Herschel Walker certainly has a seasoned team around him, he is not a seasoned campaigner. And so this is the type of thing that no, no, no <laughs> a seasoned campaign that had been out there for a long time would have let happen. It was unvetted. Um, uh, but even then, once it was brought to their attention, there, there simply is a portion of the Republican right that is and has been, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, equating vaccine mandates with the Holocaust. It's just a very, very ugly thing to say, to think, to repeat. But it's tolerated because these are Trump supporters. The party can't live without them. And it sets up this really unusual, difficult dynamic for these Republican candidates. And in this case, Tercel yeah. Walker's campaign just didn't handle it right. Yeah, you know, Karen, um, it there's there's a there's an you know Patricia says that uh, Walker's unvetted as a candidate and and this thing wasn't handled very well. You know what? Uh, when it comes to swastikas, it doesn't take a whole lot of brain power in a campaign to immediately condemn them. <laughs> to try to in any way equivocate is just um, a, a terrible mistake um, and and an offensive, egregious mistake on the part of the campaign. You don't yes, go there. Man. It's a done no. deal. It's a swastika. Get over it. You know? Right. And then, and then especially in the last few weeks where we've even seen these appear in schools and there was, con, you know, condemning of this actions all across. And, and, and Patricia makes the point, his people are seasoned. He may be a new candidate, but they should know what to say right away and not just cancel the event, but come out and talk about which took them hours. And that should never have happened. Um, will this have an impact all the way into next year? I don't know that it will really continue on because it was a fundraiser out of state, but it is fodder for discussion now. And I think it just is allowing those in the Republican primary to say, hey, this is maybe not the choice you want to go with because he's not going to be able to really take on uh, Senator Warnock. I would actually argue that as long as the Trump wing is ascendant in the Republican Party, this is actually probably, it's a hiccup, but it's not a problem for, uh, for Herschel Walker. Um, um, you know, what this shows is that you have a group of people who are willing to be incendiary and provocative um, and offensive uh, to people, um, you know, in pursuit of whatever their agenda is and whatever it is that they have to say. And Walker, like other Republican candidates, uh, covets their votes, and so he's not willing to actually sort of confront in a strong way, um, you know, why this was a problem. 
um, and distance himself from it, you know, in part because, you know, her response was, although she took down her social media, was to say, you know, this is basically cancel culture, right? And so if you just fall back on that, on that trope, then that sort of, sort of makes you sort of within what the Republican version of woke orthodoxy is. And so, uh, yeah, so, I mean, this is probably not going to have an effect because people are too afraid of who she represents and the type of people who agree with her. And they want those votes so bad that they will actually, like, you know, bend themselves in the, tw- in the pretzels so as not to offend them as opposed to calling out behavior that's clearly wrong, that's clearly bad. Uh, Leroy, uh, Viviano Langlais uh, uh, said in another post, uh, subsequent to all this controversy, said she removed the symbol, quote, because of the left's need to silence free speech. So there you go, Leroy. Yeah, so in the world, uh, in this bubble, uh, uh, that's really uh, about uh, Trump, the defense of Trump, and all the things that animate uh, some of the the, the far-right uh, fundraising and is, uh, is, is about uh, a common enemy. So <laughs> it's not surprising that, uh, no matter what happens, that it, it gets reverted back to that common enemy for them, which is, again, you know, Democrats, old culture, all the folks who are a threat to uh, the values of Republicans uh, as they state them. Uh, it's a little bit like uh, nailing jello to the wall, though. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty malleable. I mean, it can be whatever you want to be, and it's situational, but uh, certainly not surprising, and we'll see a whole lot more of that sort of judo. All right. Um, I do think, Patricia, one last comment on this from you, if you don't mind. I, it, Herschel Walker has so far, he's sort of tried in terms of whatever public statements he's been making to position himself. We know we know Trump supports him, so he doesn't have to go out of his way to be a pro-Trumper in a, his public comments necessarily. He doesn't have to walk in lockstep with Trump. But he is trying to position himself as a guy who knows how to work with a diverse with group diverse groups of people. He can work across the aisle. He has respect for everyone. So while this may not, in the long run, have a huge impact beyond this week's uh, news cycles, um, it, it doesn't help him in his efforts to portray himself as a broad-minded uh, candidate who will work uh, with diverse groups. Yeah, that's right. Uh, his opening message in his video uh, said that uh, it is artificial. It's an artificial divide to to try and split Democrats and Republicans. Um, when he was uh, even appearing on Fox News this week, he said um, that he wants the same things that Democratic voters want. Now, Republicans did not warm to that, um, but it is Herschel Walker's message. And he has the luxury of that message because he's already got Donald Trump's approval. He's already got millions of dollars in the bank. He's going to be able to continue to raise money over and over and over. He doesn't have to be a regular primary candidate um, in order to get through the Republican primary. But events like this damage that effort. And events, um, when you're sort of pushed quickly to make a snap judgment about what's right and what's wrong, um, it should be easier than this for a campaign. Okay. Um, Thank you all for a great first uh, part of our show today. Great discussion. We're going to take a break right now and be back with more in just a moment. We're back with political science professor from University of West Georgia, Karen Owen, Emory University political science professor, Andra Gillespie, managing editor of the AJC, Leroy Chapman, and political reporter and columnist at the AJC, Patricia uh, Murphy. Um, Leroy, the uh, AJC, like GPB News, has done a, I think, has focused in a a pretty, uh, I think, positive way on this controversy that sprung up around the University System of Georgia's Board of Regents decision to change the, the evaluations that they are able to give to tenured professors in all of the state universities um, uh, in, in, in Georgia. Um, and, and the rules that they're putting in place seem to give them more room to dismiss prof- tenured professors um, than they've ever had before. And that's led to a significant backlash among faculty and among some accreditation organizations, yes? It has. Uh, and you think about what that might mean to uh, the, the faculty that's here, uh, what it might mean in being able to to attract uh, new faculty to Georgia in a competitive uh, 
workspace. Uh, we're talking about uh, Georgia, its university system, and you know I have three kids, uh, all of all of whom chose uh, in-state schools. Uh, we've been satisfied with uh, those in-state schools, and uh, I think that uh, there's there's great satisfaction here uh, among parents. So part of this is uh, is this a solution that's in search of a problem? And certainly that that's the feeling that uh, many of the faculty members get that this is really about uh, culture wars and also academic freedom and some of the things that we've been seeing out of out of colleges and universities that might be unsettling to folks who uh, happen to be on the conservative side of the aisle. So uh, it, it sounds uh, itself to be things that uh, proposals that make sense to, to people when you when you read them. But when you think about uh, how they may be instituted, what does this mean in practice? What's the worst application of it? Uh, you kind of understand the, the the faculty members and also the colleges too, who who I think understandably worry about what this is going to mean for both the folks that they've got employed now, and also their ability to be able to compete, which you cannot underestimate because there is an arms race for academic talent. Yeah, uh, Karen, we should point out that you are a tenured professor at the University of West Georgia, part of the university system of Georgia. Uh, it was pointed out to me uh, yesterday that uh, this decision by the regents, this vote, comes right at, in the heart of recruitment season, efforts by the system to bring new professors, assistant professors, whatever, into the system, and this could be a real problem. Yes, it is. Um, and then the academic calendar, we are recruiting talent now to come, you know, September, October, and we'll be making decisions usually by, you know, the end of October for this. And it is difficult because many times as you go into higher ed for an academic, you do want that protection of tenure to allow you the academic freedom to change your teaching pedagogy to try new things, to research things that perhaps others are not willing to tackle and try. And so when you start to implement these changes, it does call into question what we can do. I think with this new policy, though, we have to think about how it will, it, it will go back to the local college for the actual implementation and what the, the strategies will be. And so each university and each university's faculty will be responsible for laying out some of these post-tenure um, review changes. I think another piece is that it's getting tied to student success and what does that really mean and putting that definition on student success. And I would say that, you know, faculty concern is, let's say that you try some new teaching method for a, a, your subject and a couple of students hated it. They didn't think they learned anything. They can really evaluate you poorly and that can then affect you in that annual review. So there's a lot to be worried about and concerned about. And I think it's just now allowing university faculty to have input to really say how it will be implemented. So, you know, in this particular debate, I'm coming from a privileged position because I teach at a private school, but there are lots of structural things here that I think the regions are trying to, trying to address that they're not addressing well. Part, and then there's this big structural problem here. I looked over the bios of all the members of the Board of Regents. There isn't a PhD on the Board of Regents, right? There are a couple of honorary doctorates. They don't count, um, um, respectfully, in, in, you know, in, in this particular situation. But there is nobody who really understands how higher education works. I think a lot of people get the impression that because they went to college, they know how colleges and universities work. You don't know the half of it. Right. Even as an assistant professor, I didn't know what was going on. And I would say now as an associate professor with some administrative responsibilities, I'm sure my dean and provost will tell me what I don't know very, very quickly. But in terms of actually understanding what the process looks like, it's helpful to have somebody who at least has a passing familiarity with what's going on. And I wouldn't want the regents to necessarily be all professors or all PhDs, but like I, I just see people who don't really know what's going on, who are not necessarily bringing a fresh outsider's perspective, but are trying to micromanage something that they fundamentally don't get. 
Um, and so I think, you know, that's part of it. They forget that universities are supposed to be run by the faculty. Faculty are supposed to create the curriculum. I know they're trying to create other metrics by which somebody doesn't get, ten somebody gets tenure and then basically like checks out for the next 30 years. They're not research productive. They phone in their classes. They do all those kinds of things. A, a good share um, and a strong dean are there to mitigate against that. And it doesn't necessarily need to be sort of, you know, micromanaged from on high in order to address that. I mean, and if you were concerned about celebrity professors who like, you know, don't teach at all, I think that there are other ways that we can address that kind of issue to make sure that resources are being used in that, especially well-paying tenured faculty members are actually in the classroom and engaging with students in, in the same way. But, you know, one of the things that, I, you know, I, I will say is that, you know, I was observing from a distance when there was a fight on the Board of Visitors at the University of Virginia um, close to a decade ago um, about sort of whether or not we were going to move to online education. And these very business-minded trustees decided that they wanted to, um, you know, basically fire the president of the university because she didn't move fast enough on online education. Um, you know, uh, they got slapped by SACS, the accrediting body, who were meddling too much into the affairs of the university. Let the people who know what they're doing handle this situation. Um, you know, this, this, is, this intervention is not helpful. And the other thing that's actually really important about this, and Leroy, please correct me if I'm wrong about this, but they're also part of the decision will allow the Board of Regents to take over a tenure process if they don't think it's rigorous enough. And yeah. that, particularly yeah. with no PhDs, um, on the board, yeah. like you have absolutely no right to sit and judge the quality um, of, of of the work that's being done, especially with all the letters and the process that that takes. That's where, like, I, I really have a problem. So, Patricia, let me bring you in, but but let me play for you a soundbite uh, that a GPB reporter uh, Sarah Rose got with uh, Matthew Bodie, who is the president of the Georgia Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Uh, here's what Matthew Bodie uh, said about what was happening. As we expected, the um, Board of Regents uh, decided to um, not listen to faculty, not listen to the thousands of voices of faculty members and experts around the nation, and have killed tenure today in Georgia. Uh, it is a brutal attack on higher education coming from the very people who claim to lead it and represent it. So here's another aspect of this, uh, Patricia. Um, you know, you hear a brutal attack uh, because the, the positions of tenured uh, professors will be a, a little bit uh, more fragile when these rules take effect. But, but there's also been a concern that, there, that, that politics could play a role in all of this, right? You know, Sonny Perdue still in the background being considered for maybe Chancellor of Georgia. We know that at one point months ago, he made a statement in which he talked about the political atmosphere on college state college campuses. He thought it needed to be addressed. And there are those who, who are concerned that part of what the regions could do here is uh, evaluate the kind of class are they teaching too much about you know race and white privilege and uh, and and there is a concern about that in all of this too patricia well, I think the timing of this decision um, is really why those kinds of concerns are being raised, and I don't think they're illegitimate. Um, all you have to do is go to a local school board meeting and understand how politicized and how dangerously politicized education has become. And um, when you look to the kind of the most recent scandal in higher education, it was when Nicole Hannah-Jones had been offered a position at the University of North Carolina's Journalism School. Um, and But it was a non-tenured track position, uh, despite the fact that other people with her same level of expertise and experience had been offered tenure track positions. Um, she is also the one, the Pulitzer Prize winner behind the 1619 Project. Um, and there was a, I think, a very obvious concern that she was not being offered tenure because of the kind of scholarship and work that she had done in the past. And because the 1619 Project in particular had become sort of a boogeyman for Republicans, um, and to the point that Donald Trump has offered the 1776 project to say, no, that's yeah. not the history you should know. 
this is the history you should know. So the questions of history, the questions of the role of racism in society, the questions of the role of racism at every level of our um, of our education system, these are all just hot button, blaring nuclear issues. And to to then bring in a conversation about, and now we're going to end tenure just as the need for academic freedom probably has never been more in need of protection. I think that's why the concerns are out there. There are also problems with tenured professors, of course. Um, however, you cannot get away from the political dynamics and the danger yeah. of academic freedom. Well, the Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, uh, case um, goes one step even further in terms of the concerns that really Andra expressed. It was one member of the board of region, a big contributor to the university who objected to her getting tenure. The faculty had recommended that, of course, she should get tenure. And one big donor said, don't do that, a conservative. So it's things like that that really, I think, have raised some of the concerns, plus uh, among, what, seven plus thousand tenured professors. Andrew, real quick before we go to a break. And so here's the point. If, if they're concerned about critical race theory, like we don't teach critical race theory to seven-year-olds and 15-year-olds. And just intellectually, they're not there for it. But your 20-year-old can handle it. And if somebody who teaches, like I'm teaching African-American politics right now, if I had to guess off the top of my head, my students are reading 3,000 pages. Trust me, we're not sitting around talking about how the man got us. We're actually doing real work. <laughs> thank, thank you for that perspective. we got to get to our final break of the show. More in just a moment on Political Rewind. Um, Leroy Chapman, uh, as managing editor of the AJC, first of all, let me get you back into this conversation right now. Um, you guys are gearing up as GPB News is for one of the biggest trials we're going to see in Georgia in, for, for de in decades past and, and probably to come. The Ahmaud Arbery uh, trial begins on Monday. Uh, something like 1,000 people have been called uh, to be in the jury pool. And um, it, it's good. The, the eyes of the country are going to be focused on this trial um, in many ways. It, is it fair to say it in a similar way to the George Floyd, uh, Derek Chauvin trial? Uh, yeah, so the expectation is that there's going to be a lot of media there. Uh, this trial, I think people are, you know, understand the, the facts as they've been presented. Uh, Mark Arbery was uh, in a neighborhood where he was uh, chased down uh, in, in a vehicle, uh, confronted, and then fatally killed, fatally shot. Um, and uh, there have been there are two trials. Uh, one is going to be uh, in next year is going to be a federal hate crimes trial. But this trial, the state trial, is about the guilt or innocence of the the three men who uh, confronted him that day, uh, one of whom. Uh, again, with a shotgun, uh, killed uh, Arbery. So uh, this uh, is obviously packed with uh, a lot of what we saw last year in terms of, uh, of race. And uh, one of the two of the men who were involved, one uh, was a, a former police investigator. The other one uh, worked for uh, the, um, the uh, law enforcement down in, in Glen County. So when you uh, look at uh, what uh, jurors are going to have to decide. It is about uh, intent. It is about uh, whether or not uh, this was self-defense, which is, of course, the the, the claim of uh, the men who were involved. And also, I think what the judge has done to focus the case on the actions that day and not uh, allow the, the, the trial to be uh, a trial of the victim having to defend uh, who he is and what he's done prior to that moment that none of the men knew about uh, versus what happened that day and how the law applies to what happened that day. And there's a lot of Georgia laws that are that are that will be argued in this case because of, you know, stand your ground, uh, self-defense uh, and uh, others that in uh, property rights uh, that will come into play. So it's going to be watched closely uh, across the country and uh, we NGTV and others are going to be there. It will be their gavel to gavel, um, just uh, being able to uh, to report on every facet of this case, which will, again, uh, be watched around the world and will say something about Georgia and who we are today. So, Andre, let me start with you, but I'd love to get everybody to weigh in on this. Um, I, I'm going to ask you a very broad question. This, this case, uh, this trial, 
will center around whether there was whether racism played a role in why uh, these three uh, uh, defendants uh, went after Ahmad Arbery. Um, how how do you look at um, in the same way we do with Derek Chauvin, George Floyd, going back to A.J. Simpson? How do you look at race as a big factor in a trial like this? And whether it is, um, in some ways, is it disruptive to the way we think as a society? Is it somehow helpful that we address these things? Just, I know that's a very broad question, but what do you think as you see this beginning next week? Well, I mean, it starts with jury selection. So, you know, it's unconstitutional to select people uh, for juries based on their race. And so I think the questions are going to be whether or not the preemptive challenges that the lawyers use uh, sort of follow a pattern and whether or not certain groups are being systematically kept out of it in an attempt to try to, you know, game the jury uh, to try to you know, put as favorable jury together as possible um, for the defendants or for the prosecution. Um, so it, it shows up there. The fact that we've had to have Supreme Court cases because blacks have been kept off of juries is something that that's important. And we sh- shouldn't forget that um, the video is important in this particular case because there are these stand your ground claims and there are these property rights claims. But there are the larger issue of Ahmaud Arbery was, you know, jogging down the street. Um, you know, sort of, you know, some people are going to argue fleeing the scene of a crime where, you know, he may have trespassed, but like didn't do anything. Um, and then there is sort of like the shot where he clearly looks like he's being hunted down from my perspective. Um, and so I think that that becomes the question of, uh, you know, what was being said um, in those particular moments. And then what is the prior sort of history with race and, 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 and racial comments that the defendants um, may have that's going to be really important in this case. So I think, you know, Andre is really smart in her analysis there. And the thing, too, about the jury is making sure when these attorneys are asking questions to understand jurors, uh, whether they're prejudging, because in this situation, we are facing where most people are very aware of this case. But are they able to actually listen to the facts, apply the law and come to a decision? And I think that's challenging, given where it is on the coast history in our state of different pieces. And I think just finding that right jury um, that can actually really listen and and not have prejudged before they sit down or bring in their own biases into the actual trial. Patricia, um, beyond what happens in the courtroom itself, um, and I'm still struggling to figure out the right way to ask this question. What is a trial based on race do to all of us in a community as we try to grapple with that subject ourselves in such large ways? I mean, does it exacerbate tensions? Does it relieve them uh, because uh, people believe that uh, uh, justice will be done to two, pe- three men who they may believe is are guilty of this crime because of race? I mean, I'm not quite sure even how to ask that question. Well, I think that it, you know, it could be a really important moment for um, all of us to learn something and to really pay close attention to exactly what happened here, Um, not just when Ahmaud Arbery was killed, but then also um, when this case went to the local prosecutor and she did not bring charges. And why did she not bring charges? Um, And then also, uh, this case has already had a profound impact on this state because of this case. The General Assembly, led by our Republican leaders, passed the first hate crimes bill at the state level, um, uh, the first that will go into effect um, at any rate, um, really because of this case, because of how horrified people were to learn of the details. And these are the types of scenarios that I think are too well known among um, Black Georgians and Black Americans. Um, but it was just a level of horror that I think was new to many, um, m- many white Georgians and especially people in the General Assembly. So it's already had an effect. That prosecutor has already lost her election. Her community has already rejected her. Um, and so um, this is, uh, will continue to have um, really profound effects, especially if we in the media can um, cover it accurately, cover it fairly, um, and uh, bring that coverage to people in a way that they can really digest what's happened here. Andra, react to what you heard Patricia say, if you don't mind. Um, 
Yes. I mean, I think we do have to, you know, acknowledge the fact that the that Ahmaud Arbery's death did actually bring hate crime legislation to Georgia. Um, you know, I, I think the, the question becomes, uh, you know, oh, how do people interpret the evidence that's presented in this particular case? And does this help to shift our thinking in terms of what we think um, about stand your ground, what we think about bringing up people's prior background and record, uh, you know, in this case, um, what does that look like? Uh, you know, if you're bringing up this, I mean, and some of the stuff that has actually, you know, been cleared and, and, and disallowed um, in this particular case. But, uh, you know, I, I think that, yes, there there have been steps that have been made as a result of, of Ahmaud Arbery's death, but I think we still have a long, long way to go before we're there. And this yeah. trial isn't going to resolve that, all of it. All right. Well, obviously, we will be talking about uh, the, the Arbery uh, trial uh, throughout the, the uh, period of time it unfolds on this show. And of course, um, it, everybody's going to be covering it uh, very, very closely. Um, real quickly, uh, Patricia, we're not going to have enough time to talk about this uh, uh, because my time management skills once again have failed me. <laughs> you wrote a really fascinating column on Wednesday that we'll put a link to on our social media. But you essentially say that one of the reasons that the Biden administration and Democrats, especially in the House, are having trouble with their big social uh, policy package, $3.5 billion trillion, is they can't figure out how to communicate what's in it to the American people. And that's really hurting them. Yes? Oh, yes. Well, there was a CBS News poll this week that showed 90 percent of Americans have no idea what's in that $3.5 trillion package. Um, part of the problem is that it's not a plan. It's really just a concept. And Democrats, I think, put the cart before the horse here. They came up with some concepts and no plan. You cannot sell a plan, especially one of this size. There's so much in there. They've communicated almost none of it. I mean, would will America like it once they find out what's in it? it might pass before that happens. And I think that's going to be a huge problem, too. You know, Leroy, you would think that people in those positions would know enough or have hired the right people to communicate specifics that can reach the people. They're better at campaigning on their messages than they are at governing on their messages, it appears. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're spot on with that. Uh, and, And it's been an interesting thing because if you recall, uh, Georgia was the recipient of a lot of visits from the White House in order to sell the plan. Uh, I don't know exactly where that went, uh, but uh, it did stall. And I've really not seen anything that uh, show, that that has shown that they they've got a, an effective plan to be able to communicate this. All right, Leroy Chapman, you get the last word in today's political rewind. Uh, Leroy, Patricia Murphy, Andre Gillespie, Karen Owen, thanks for a terrific conversation as we head into a weekend. I hope you all have a great one, uh, those of you on the panel and all of you at home as well. We're back on Monday with another new show. Until then, take care, stay healthy, wear your mask in the right situations with lots of people around you, and go get a flu shot, please, this weekend if you can. Take care, everybody. See you next week. Thank you.